Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. In this series, we are bringing you the presentations from DocSF Venture 2023 held in January of the same year, just before the start of JP Morgan. I'm Stefano Bini, your host. Our next presentation will feature the team from the investment bank Canaccord Genuity. Kyle Rose is the Managing Director of Medical Technologies and Richard Close is the Managing Director of Digital and Technologically Enabled Health Equity Research. They will comment on the trends we identified in our first episode and add their own perspectives. It was an insightful exchange. Let's welcome Kyle and Richard to the DocSF stage in San Francisco with me as the moderator. Gentlemen, thank you for coming. Thank you for sponsoring the event. Yeah, thank you for having us. We're excited to be here. Yeah. So let's start with a little discussion around definitions, because clearly we presented a physician-centric way of looking at the investments. And how do you guys look at it? Are there different ways of looking at it as you sit there at category? Yeah, so in covering digital health, well, specifically, I cover digital health and healthcare services. So my coverage is pretty broad. From the standpoint of, I cover payers, providers, their segments. So with respect to digital MSK, I think the definition is differing for different parties in that on the employer and payer side, it could be with respect to cost avoidance in terms of reducing the number of procedures. It could be virtual care in terms of follow-up after surgery, see a patient is moving around and whatnot. So it's a pretty broad definition with respect to how I look at it. Excellent. And how you want to look at med tech and certain specific stuff? How do you bucket uh, in this game? Yeah, my side, so I cover devices, and at least with the, when the U.S. is considered, it's a fee-for-service model. So, so at the end of the day, we try to understand which technologies are actually enabling the procedure and allowing it to be reimbursed, and that which technologies prior to that are enabling those enabling technologies. So the way we really think about it is more of a procedural base, a procedural specific technologies, like if the implants and then the, the technology technology that then sit one level higher to allow the physician to do better techniques, more minimally invasive techniques, things of that sort. Looking at the data that Dr. Lynch has shown us, it looks like the world is coming unhinged. Massive drop year on year, but those are potentially, that should have, could have been 2021, could have been an anomaly. How do you look at it? I'm going to give an easy answer and then I'm going to throw it over to Richard. <laughs> I think if you look at the slides that were the other category, which is more of the device focus, I think that's pretty consistent. I mean, it's, I don't know the exact percentages, but it looks like mid to high single digit increases in, in, in funding on an annual basis. Certainly none of the major step functions we've seen on the graphs that were driven a lot on the digital side. But I think a lot of the industries were that I cover on the device side, they're thought to be relatively mature. So we see consistent levels of, of investment from the VC perspective over the last five years. So in the more mature aspects of digital health, you see a pretty consistent funds. Yeah, one thing I would say in terms of the slide, you mentioned Rock Health and they haven't come out with fourth quarter numbers or the full year numbers. But 2021, obviously you had a lot of large deals to call out there. And even if you exclude those, it's a decent step down here in 2022. But the, the way I look at it, is the positive thing is if you look at 2022, it's still just about at what 2020 was, or in some cases, a little bit higher. And it, I know we're talking about venture funding, but if you also look at M&A, 
for digital health overall and not just MSK. You're back to 2020 levels. So 2021 obviously was a strange year from that standpoint. And that's a good point because the one thing I forgot to mention or that, that, that Richard just kind of sparked in my mind is we do have, we're here to talk about venture capital investments in this space, but I think it's also important to understand that when you think about orthopedics from a device perspective, I mean, it's an oligopoly type market. You've got four or five major strategic players and the devices and the implants over time have, we've seen the manufacturers will kill me for saying it, but less innovation from that perspective. And but we have seen a lot more investment on enabling technology. So how do you stitch together these what were nascent promising technologies of navigation, pre-surgical planning, custom cutting guides, personalized implants? How do you drive an ecosystem that enables those technologies to be delivered better? We are seeing huge investments there from a corporate perspective. So I don't know that I think Nancy's data is great, but I don't know that it's appropriately capturing some of the corporate level M&A and corporate level uh, investments we're seeing in the space as well. Let's go down that path for a second. What, as you said there, you're a bank, you're an investment bank, you're making these deals happen. The appetite for M&A, where is it? Is it pre-dinner, can't wait till lunch, or we kind of stuff that we don't need anymore? Where are we in that space? I'll take a shot. I mean, so I'm not an investment banker. I'm an equity analyst. The way that we think about it is we have these, I just talked about, we've got relatively mature, large companies in the space. I mean, M&A is, it's the external R&D for all of these companies. They're looking to the venture funded companies and the smaller players to be real innovators, to de-risk the value to then, they can then step in and, and acquire those assets. So there's definitely a lot of interest there. We just announced a deal last week. There's definitely a continued interest on the part of of M&A for, for the large players. And I'd say on the digital health side, if you look at it on the M&A that was completed in 2021 to 2022, most of the consolidation is between digital health companies themselves. You do have some providers acquiring technology that was pretty steady year over year. And then you do have outside technology companies that have jumped into the game a little bit. And that was pretty much a slight increase year over year in 2022 versus 2021. So we took a look at the 7-8 piece. I think it's an important thing to cover. I appreciate that. Going back to digital, I mean, investments in digital health, driven mostly by venture capital. Let's talk about Hinge, Thermata, these massive type of multi-VC investments. Do you see those coming, more of those coming in the future? Or was that a particular moment in time that re required those kinds of investments? Yeah, I mean, the fact of the matter is for employers, K is a huge cost, right? It's one of the top one, two costs. Obviously, cancer is probably number one, MSK, and I think two, whatnot. So there's a big focus on reducing those costs for employers as well as payers. And I think that's why you saw Hinge and Sword and Omada have success. I mean, if you look at Sword, I think they grew from 140 clients to something like 1,400 over the past year. So a pretty significant adoption there. You probably don't need too many more players on that front in terms of for a cost avoidance. Probably those companies are winning more than their fair share of the business. I really like this idea, or at least bringing focus this idea of cost avoidance is actually an attractive investment strategy. In healthcare, usually it's the other way around, right? How do you create something that you can get paid for and create cost? Which I'm going to jump a little bit around a little bit. I want to take that to the impact of value-based care models on investment strategies is if a company comes, has a value-based care business model, do you think that's attracting investment or is that 
cooler now. Yeah, I would say it's attracting an investment for sure. I look at both the providers as well as the payers. And you look at where some of the M&A has taken place over the last year on the payer front. They're really focused in on, I hate to say, utilization management, but that's a component of it. And really trying to reduce specialty care costs overall, whether it's cancer, cardiology, now MSK is really jumping into focus there. On the provider side, obviously, if they enter into value-based care arrangements, you have to reduce readmissions and focusing on quality outcomes. Yeah. And what I'd say is it's a bit of a mixed bag from the peer device side. I mean, it, it, and it's really follow the money. Again, it's a fee-for-service model. So where's the payment coming from? We've seen some initiatives from a government perspective. And we think about the CCJR and capitated bundled type experiments. Those have been walked back in recent years. So we've really seen the industry take a little bit of a step back. But I think just holistically moving forward, I mean, the cat's out of the bag on value-based care. It, it is about outcomes. It's about reducing the length of stay and any complications within whatever window you define it as 60 days, 90 days of a procedure. So I think that everybody is going towards the same goal, but I don't know that we've seen that the stakeholders really align on value-based care type of agreements purely from a reimbursement perspective for devices. So where we go now is this idea of technology and its impact. I think we made a very good case that AI is underpinning a great 75% looks like of the investments in the MSK space is probably true of pretty much digital health in general. We're seeing it creep into a med tech as well, or a med tech device and now AI powered in one way, one way, shape or another. So I'd like you guys to both comment on the role of artificial intelligence as you see it as part of the investment strategy. Is this something that a company needs to have in order to attract capital? If it's 75% of dollars are going towards AI driven technology, is that almost a requirement nowadays to have some? Not AI washing, some real AI. At this point, we get past the washing part. People are starting to know the difference. So thoughts about the role of AI in investment? Well, I think it's pretty much included in part of a component of everything going forward. In my coverage, I, maybe not as much experience with the clinical side of things, but AI is involved in revenue cycle, anything workflow related. I mean, as you think about the provider, improvement in workflows is a must going forward just because the cost, the reimbursement environment. So that's where I've encountered it a lot more. Yeah, I think it, it absolutely has moved past just the Washington it buzzwords. And it, based on the data, I think you you have to argue that yes, you have to have something there if 75% of the funding is going there, even if it's just a slide. I think at the end of the day, when I look at our technology, the technologies that underpin like the orthopedics that, that we cover is you've got good outcomes in a lot of the cases. You've got 90% plus outcomes at 10 years on total joints. But what you see is you, everyone's charging towards this patient satisfaction number. Patient satisfaction is 70% to 80% of patients. So there's, if you're getting towards a reimbursement scheme where patient satisfaction and patient reported outcomes play a larger role in the reimbursement bundle or whatever that is, then you need to solve that. And I think there's a lot of technologies that that you can solve with that, but we've seen them underutilized for various reasons, whether it's cost on a pre-op perspective or imaging, or whether it's utilization in the OR. Just, there's a variety of reasons why navigation isn't used or custom cutting guides or custom implants. So I think AI and some of the technologies that are derived from that can help simplify the user experience, which can mean more doctors are using it. It democratizes the, the surgical techniques and some of the surgical procedures a bit more that I think will really help drive some of the long-term innovation there.
I'm really thankful that you didn't go to the diagnostic side. I think AI has been way oversold on the diagnostic side. But what I just want to underline, that make sure I understood correctly, you looking at the value proposition for artificial intelligence right now seems to be in the resource allocation, resource optimization, process flow management. That, I think, has shown itself lean task, got a big chunk of change recently, very good at optimizing ORs. And I think that you're absolutely right. I think that those are the areas where AI is applied. And actually, Kyle, you, even though you mentioned something that's come to more clinical, it's still the decreasing variability in the outcomes where we're looking to AI to give us a hand. Is that a fair sort of summary? I'd say that's fair. And then also on the payer front, in terms of figuring out Who's, who really needs surgery and doesn't? Who's a better candidate in terms of receiving certain surgery versus physical therapy or what? Yeah, and where those procedures, what devices should be used in the procedures, where they should be operated on. I mean, there's a lot of varying incentives for stakeholders to do procedures inpatient versus outpatient, you know, things of that sort. So if that's standardized and there's models that can help drive some of that, I think that can lead to big improvements as well. Yeah, I don't think we see it quite yet, but I do know that the insurance companies are mining this data using machine learning algorithms to identify exactly those patterns. I don't think most surgeons are actually aware of that and that the pretty soon they'll have to. One of the things I think surgeons are, at least the clinical side of the healthcare branch, isn't arming themselves with the data to support their position. They're going to have a very hard time arguing against tens of thousands of data points that argue that they're wrong if they don't have their own data to support. And that's actually been something that a few people may pay attention to, but not enough. But let's talk a little bit about investments in MSK. For those of you, particularly in the med tech sector, the devices, it is regulatory risk. I think there's been an effort to improve, decrease the cost regulation, but the risk is still there. Do you want to talk a little bit about how that plays out in MSK investments and whether any information we saw earlier could speak to that? Yeah, I mean, I think when you think about regulatory risk, particularly on the device, I'll leave it to the VCs to talk in a couple of minutes here. But I think it speaks to Nancy's comment earlier. You're seeing fewer early deals be done. I think you're seeing the risk curve shift out. I mean, I think every investor would like to have reduced regulatory risk, just given the uncertainty that that, that brings to investment, upfront investment required from a dollar standpoint, but also time to realize whatever your exit is. So I think as it stands for from a device side, I'm not seeing a lot of interest from investors to take true regulatory risk from an orthopedic perspective. I think we see more regulatory risk being taken in the cardio and some of the other more general surgery type spaces, but from a pure orthopedic perspective, really have not seen a lot of, of investor appetite there. Yeah, I don't have much to add on that with respect to that digital MSK companies that I follow. It's not really a factor. So on the other hand, the digital companies have very little regulatory risk, right? So they're probably more attractive investment from that point of view because it's a less regulated space. Would that be fair or? Yeah, I mean, I, again, you get back into digital health, it's, it's very broad, right? So a lot of the excitement over the last, call it three years, has really been on that payer and employer front less on the provider front, I would say, from public companies and the large deals that Nancy called out. And that's just due to the cost, right? People trying to figure out how do we reduce the spend. 
as you move forward, you have true innovation from an AI or a machine learning perspective where they're driving surgical recommendations from a technique or a procedure perspective, that will require more regulatory risk. I think there's a lot of interesting dancing around the periphery of not practicing medicine. But once you start making or suggesting some of those decisions, that's when it really changes. And that's what we've seen. I cover the diabetes space as well. And there's been a, a big, I'd say a renaissance of innovation over the course of the last five to 10 years there as we've collected more, or as clinicians have, and technologies have collected more data. But you can only take you to so far because once you cross that line of practicing medicine, then that's where all the regulatory risk comes in. So I think we, we haven't really seen that enter the orthopedic space yet. From the regulatory standpoint, on the digital therapeutics, obviously we've seen changes there or reducing some of the thresholds during COVID. It'll be interesting to see what happens in the several years over the next couple of years in terms of whether things get more stringent, but there was definitely relaxation there. All right, since we started at the beginning by looking big and looking at the role of MSK within the bigger digital health ecosystem, then we went down a couple of rabbit holes here looking really specific at the investments from both the, uh, the large, large the medtech side and the large, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm losing it. The group side, but the, at the end of the day, we still live within, what I want to ask you, sorry, <laughs> is this question is where do we sit in, what other interesting innovations are you seeing outside of the piece, outside of MSK? that can inform where we're going to be going in our space. You mentioned diabetes. I think diabetes is phenomenal because it moved from episodic care to continuous care. And the whole cost of continuous care is completely novel to health in general. We never had the sort of data available to learn from machine learning. Where else have you seen some very interesting innovation that could be more healthcare related that could apply to diabetes? Yeah, so I'll start. I mean, yeah, I think diabetes is a perfect example there. You moved, we saw it almost moving from an analog to a digital environment in the sense that now if you have type 1 or, or even type 2 diabetes, you can wear a, a sensor on your arm that takes a reading every one to five minutes and gives you real-time continuous glucose monitoring. It can alert you if you're going low at night, and then it can, over time, as you collect that data, you can then predict different types of trends. On Tuesdays, you go low after working out or something along those lines. And we're just starting to see some of the early insights of what that data can do from a population level perspective. In, in, in orthopedics, I think we're just starting to see that as well. I mean, you, the, one of the co-sponsors in, in, in a company that'll be up here in a few minutes, I'm not, I won't steal there, but they have an implantable product that that drives some of those same types of, of data that we see in the diabetes space. It's real-time monitoring to provide predictions and outcomes and care monitoring. So I think that we're at a very early stage there, but I don't know that it's unfair to think that's gonna be materially different than some of the innovation and, and change that we've seen in the diabetes space. So I, I think there's a lot of reasons to be excited just based on some of the technology that are commercial right now. Yeah, I would say the fact that healthcare spend is 20% of the overall economy, there's a lot of focus on bending the cost curve that the trend is not sustainable. So maybe less from an innovation standpoint, but just continued adoption, figuring out ways to improve workflow for the provider organizations, staffing. Staffing is a huge problem. If you looked at the numbers that Nancy put up, MSK was 2021. Staffing was probably 2022. With respect to larger deals, there was a flurry on that front. So again, I cover the entire continuum of the healthcare, the payers, the providers, the employers. So I really think workflow is going to be a key theme over the next couple of years. We have to figure out how to incorporate technology in that to essentially be able to continue to provide the care going forward.
Absolutely. I think we have one, maybe two minutes for a question if there is one. And not see any. <laughs> I'd like to thank Kyle Rose, uh, Richard Close and Kyle Rose for joining us from Canning for Genovity and for giving us their insights. It was really interesting. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brian. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Nancy, Kyle, and Richard. Next time, join us on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast when we hear from one of our sponsors, Canary Medical. Their technology enables the placement of sensors inside implants, and they'll present some of their earliest data. It's actually quite exciting. See you then. We hope you enjoyed this presentation and will consider joining us live in San Francisco for DocSF 2023, when we will explore how digital technologies will enhance, support, and enable the expansion of the outpatient surgery arena. Register now to join our mailing list at docsf.health, docsf.health, and be the first to access our limited tickets. DocSF, join the revolution.